26. A pen to be market day. And the public square was densely crowded. I was interested in observing the character and abundance of the fish offered for sale. Among those with a familiar appearance were the sturgeon, perch, and pike, and a small fish resembling our alewife. There was a fish unknown to me, with a long snout like a duck's bill, and a body on the extreme clipper model. All these fish are from the Yenisei, some dwelling there permanently while others ascend annually from the Arctic Ocean. All in the market were frozen solid and the larger ones were piled up like cordwood. From the bank overlooking the river there is a fine view of the valley of the Yenisei. There are several islands in the vicinity, and I was told that in the season of floods the stream has a very swift current. It is no easy work to ferry across it, and the boats generally descend a mile or two while paddling over. A few years ago a resident of Krasnoyarsk made a remarkable voyage on this river. He had been attending a wedding several miles away on the other bank and started to return late at night so as to reach the ferry about daybreak. His equipage was a wooden teal yaga drawn by two powerful horses, having partaken of the cup that inebriates. The man fell asleep and allowed his horses to take their own course. Knowing the way perfectly they came without accident to the ferry landing, their owner still wrapped in his drunken slumber. The boat was on the other side, and the horses, no doubt hungry and impatient, plunged in to swim across. The teal yacht filled with water, but had sufficient buoyancy not to sink. The cold bath waked and sobered the involuntary voyager when about halfway over the river. He had the good sense, aided by fright, to remain perfectly still, and was landed in safety. Those who saw him coming in the early dawn were struck with astonishment, and one, at least, imagined that he beheld Neptune in his marine chariot breasting the waters of the Yenisei. My informant vouched for the correctness of the story and gave it as an illustration of the courage and endurance of Siberian horses. According to the statement of the condition of the river, the beasts could have as easily crossed the Mississippi at Memphis in an ordinary stage of water. Wolves are abundant in the valley of the Yenisei, though they are not generally dangerous to men. An officer whom I met there told me they were less troublesome than in Poland, and he related his experience with them in the latter country while on a visit to the family of a young lady to whom he was betrothed. I give his story as nearly as possible in his own words. One day my friend Razlov proposed a wolf hunt. We selected the best horses from his stable, fine, quick, sure-footed beasts, with a driver who was unsurpassed in all that region for his skill and dash. The sleigh was a large one, and we fitted it with a good supply of robes and straw, and put a healthy young pig in it to serve as a decoy. We each had a gun, and carried a couple of spare guns, with plenty of ammunition so that we could kill as many wolves as presented themselves. Just as we were preparing to start, Christina asked to accompany us. I suggested the coldness of the night, and Razlov hinted that the sleigh was too small for three. But Christina protested that the air, though sharp, was clear and still, and she could wrap herself warmly, a ride of a few hours would do her more good than harm. The sleigh, she insisted, was a large one, and afforded ample room. Besides. She added, I will sit directly behind the driver, and out of your way, and I want to see a wolf hunt very much indeed. So we consented. Christina arrayed herself in a few moments, and we started on our excursion. The servants were instructed to hang out a light in front of the entrance to the courtyard. It was about sunset when we left the chateau and drove out upon the plain, covered here and there with patches of forest. The road we followed was well trodden by the many peasants on their way to the fair at the town. 
25 miles away. We traveled slowly, not wishing to tire our horses, and, as we left the half-dozen villages that clustered around the chateau, we had the road entirely to ourselves. The moon rose soon after sunset, and as it was at the full, it lighted up the plain very clearly, and seemed to stand out quite distinct from the deep blue sky and the bright stars that sparkled everywhere above the horizon. We chatted gaily as we rode along. The time passed so rapidly that I was half surprised. When Razlov told me to get ready to hunt wolves, the pig had been lying very comfortably in the bottom of the sleigh, and protested quite loudly as we brought him out. The rope had been made ready before we started from home, and so the most we had to do was to turn the horses around, get our guns ready, and throw the pig upon the ground. He set up a piercing shriek as the rope dragged him along, and completely drowned our voices. Paul had hard work to keep the horses from breaking into a run, but he succeeded, and we maintained a very slow trot. Christina nestled in the place she had agreed to occupy, and Razlov and I prepared to shoot the wolves. We drove thus for fifteen or twenty minutes. The pig gradually became exhausted, and reduced his scream to a sort of moan that was very painful to hear. I began to think we should see no wolves, and return to the chateau without firing our guns, when suddenly a howl came faintly along the air, and in a moment, another and another. There, said Razlov, there comes our game, and we shall have work enough before long. A few moments later I saw a half-dozen dusky forms emerging from the forest to the right and behind us. They seemed like moving spots on the snow, and had it not been for their howling I should have failed to notice them as early as I did. They grew more and more numerous, and, as they gathered behind us, formed a waving line across the road that gradually took the shape of a crescent, with the horns pointing toward our right and left. At first they were timid, and kept a hundred yards or more behind us. But as the hog renewed his scream, they took courage, and approached nearer. By the time they were within fifty yards there were two or three hundred of them possibly half a thousand. I could see every moment that their numbers were increasing, and it was somewhat impatiently that I waited Razlov's signal to fire. At last he told me to begin, and I fired at the center of the pack. The wolf I struck gave a howl of pain, and his companions, roused by the smell of blood, fell upon and tore him to pieces in a moment. Razlov fired an instant after me, and then we kept up our firing as fast as possible. As the wolves fell, the others sprang upon them, but the pack was so large that they were not materially detained by stopping to eat up their brethren. They continued the pursuit, and what alarmed me, they came nearer, and showed very little fear of our guns. We had taken a large quantity of ammunition more by half than we thought would possibly be needed but its quantity diminished so rapidly as to suggest the probability of exhaustion. The pack steadily came nearer. We cut away the pig, but it stopped the pursuit only for a moment. Directly behind us the wolves were not ten yards away, on each side they were no further from the horses, who were snorting with fear, and requiring all the efforts of the driver to hold them. We shot down the beasts as fast as possible, and as I saw our danger I whispered my thoughts to Razlov. He replied to me in Spanish, which Christina did not understand, that the situation was really dangerous, and we must prepare to get out of it. I would stay longer, he suggested, though there is a good deal of risk in it, but we must think of the girl, and not let her suspect anything wrong, and, above all, must not risk her safety. Turning to the driver. He said, in a cheery tone, Paul, we have shot till we are tired out, 
you may let the horses go, but keep them well in control. While he spoke a huge wolf sprang from the pack and dashed toward one of the horses, another followed him, and in twenty seconds the line was broken and they were upon us. One wolf jumped at the rear of the sleigh and caught his paws upon it. Razlov struck him with the butt of his gun, and at the same instant he delivered the blow. Paul let the horses have their way. Razlov fell upon the edge of the vehicle and over its side. Luckily, his foot caught in one of the robes and held him for an instant long enough to enable me to seize and draw him back. It was the work of a moment. But what a moment. Christina had remained silent, suspecting, but not fully comprehending our danger. As her brother fell she screamed and dropped senseless to the bottom of the sleigh. I confess that I exerted all my strength in that effort to save the brother of my affianced, and as I accomplished it, I sank powerless, though still conscious, at the side of the girl I loved. Razlot's right arm was dislocated by the fall, and one of the pursuing wolves had struck his teeth into his scalp as he was dragging over the side, and torn it so that it bled profusely. How narrow had been his escape. Faster, faster, Paul, he shouted, drive for your life and for ours. Paul gave the horses free rein, and they needed no urging. They dashed along the road as horses rarely ever dashed before. In a few minutes I gained strength enough to raise my head, and saw, to my unspeakable delight, that the distance between us and the pack was increasing. We were safe if no accident occurred and the horses could maintain their pace. One horse fell, but, as if knowing his danger, made a tremendous effort and gained his feet. By and by we saw the light at the chateau, and in a moment dashed into the courtyard, and were safe. Chapter XL I found at Krasnoyarsk more beggars than in Irkutsk. In proportion to the population, like beggars in all parts of the empire, they made the sign of the cross on receiving donations. A few were young, but the great majority were old, tattered, and decrepit, who shivered in the frosty air and turn purple visages upon their benefactors. The peasantry in Russia are liberal to the poor, and in many localities they have abundant opportunities to practice charity. With its abundance of beggars Krasnoyarsk can also boast a great many wealthy citizens. The day before my departure one of these Siberian Croesuses died, and another was expected to follow his example before long. A church near the marketplace was built at the sole expense of this deceased individual. Its cost exceeded 700,000 rubles, and its interior was said to be finely decorated. Among the middle classes in Siberia the erection of churches island or has been the fashionable mode of public benefaction. The endowment of schools, libraries, and scientific associations has commenced, but is not yet fully popular. The wealth of Krasnoyarsk is chiefly derived from gold digging. The city may be considered the center of mining enterprises in the government of Yeniseisk. Two or three thousand laborers in the gold mines spend the winter at Krasnoyarsk, and add to the volume of local commerce. The town of Yeniseisk, 300 versts further north, hibernates an equal number, and many hundreds are scattered through the villages in the vicinity. The mining season begins in May and ends in September. In March and April the clerks and superintendents engage their laborers, paying a part of their wages in advance. The wages are not high and only those in straitened circumstances, the dissolute, and profligate, who have no homes of their own, are inclined to let themselves to labor in gold mines, many works are extensive, and employ a thousand or more laborers each, the government grants mining privileges to individuals on certain conditions, 
the land granted must be worked at least one year out of every three, else the title reverts to the government, and can be allotted again. The grantee must be either a hereditary nobleman or pay the tax of a merchant of the second guild, or he should be able to command the necessary capital for the enterprise he undertakes. His title holds good until his claim is worked out or abandoned, and no one can disturb him on any pretext. He receives a patent for a strip of land seven versts long and a hundred fathoms wide, on the banks of a stream suitable for mining purposes. The claim extends on both sides of the stream, and includes its bed, so that the water may be utilized at the will of the miner. Sometimes the grantee desires a width of more than a hundred fathoms, but in such case the length of his claim is shortened in proportion. It requires a large capital to open a claim after the grant is obtained. The location is often far from any city or large town, where supplies are purchased. Transportation is a heavy item, as the roads are difficult to travel. Sometimes a hundred thousand rubles will be expended in supplies, transportation, buildings, and machinery. Before the work begins, then men must be hired, taken to the mines, clothed, and furnished with proper quarters. The proprietor must have at hand a sufficient amount of provisions, medical stores, clothing, and miscellaneous goods to supply his men during the summer. Everything desired by the laborer is sold to him at a lower price than he could buy elsewhere. At least such is the theory. I was told that the mining proprietors make no profits from their workmen, but simply add the cost of transportation to the wholesale price of the merchandise. The men are allowed to anticipate their wages by purchase and it often happens that there is very little due them at the end of the season. Government regulations and the interest of proprietors require that the laborers should be well federal and housed and tended during sickness. Every mining establishment maintains a physician either on its own account or jointly with a neighbor. The national dish of Russia, ski, is served daily, with at least a pound of beef. Sometimes the treatment of the men lapses into negligence toward the close of the season especially if the enterprise is unfortunate, but this is not the case in the early months. The mining proprietors understand the importance of keeping their laborers in good health, and to secure this end there is nothing better than proper food and lodging. Vogti is dealt out in quantities sufficiently small to prevent intoxication, except on certain feast days, when all can get drunk to their liking. No drinking shops can be kept on the premises until the season's work is over and the men are preparing to depart. Every laborer is paid for extra work, and if industrious and prudent his wages will equal 35 or 40 rubles a month beside his board, while in debt he is required by law to work every day, not even resting on saints days or Sundays, the working season lasting only about four months, early and late hours are a necessity, when the year's operations are ended the most of the men find their way to the larger towns where they generally waste their substance in riotous living till the return of spring, as in mining communities everywhere, the prudent and economical are a minority. The mines in the government of Yeniseisk are generally on the tributaries of the Yenisei River. The valley of the pit is rich in gold deposits, and has yielded large fortunes to lucky operators during the past 20 years. Usually the pay dirt begins 20 or 30 feet below the surface and I heard of a mine that yielded handsome profits though the gold-bearing earth was under 70 feet of soil. Prospecting is conducted with great care, and no mining enterprise is commenced without a thorough survey of the region to be developed. Wells or pits are dug at regular intervals, the exact depth and the character of the upper earth being noted. This often involves a large expenditure of money and labor. 
and many fortunes have been wasted, by parties whose lucky star was not in the ascendant, in their persistent yet unsuccessful search for paying mines, solid rock is sometimes struck sooner or later after commencing work, which renders the expense of digging vastly greater, in such cases, unless great certainty exists of striking a rich vein of gold beneath, the labor is suspended, the spot vacated, and another selected with perhaps like results, occasionally some sanguine operator will push his well down through 50 feet of solid rock at a great outlay, and with vast labor, to find himself possessed of the means for a large fortune, while another will find himself ruined by his failure to strike the expected gold, when the pay dirt is reached, its depth and the number of zoologics of gold in every pool taken out are ascertained, with the results before him a practical miner can readily decide whether a place will pay for working, of course he must take many contingent facts into consideration, such as the extent of the placer, the resources of the region, the roads or the expense of making them, provisions, lumber, transportation, horses, tools, men, and so on through a long list. The earth over the pay dirt is broken up and carted off, its great depth causes immense wear of horseflesh. A small mine employs three or four hundred workmen, and larger ones in proportion. I heard of one that kept more than three thousand men at work. The usual estimate for horses is one to every two men, but the proportion varies according to the character of the mine. The pay dirt is hauled to the bank of the river, where it is washed in machines turned by water plower. Various machines have been devised for gold washing, and the Russians are anxious to find the best invention of the kind. The one in most general use and the easiest to construct is a long cylinder of sheet iron open at both ends and perforated with many small holes. This revolves in a slightly inclined position, and receives the dirt and a stream of water at the upper end. The stones pass through the cylinder and fall from the opposite end, where they are examined to prevent the loss of nuggets, fine dirt, sand, gold, and water pass through the perforations, and are caught in suitable troughs where the lighter substance washes away and leaves the black sand and gold. Great care is exercised to prevent thefts, but it does not always succeed. The laborers manage to purloin small quantities, which they sell to contraband dealers in the larger towns. The government forbids private traffic in gold dust, and punishes offenses with severity, but the profits are large and tempting. Every gold miner must send the product of his diggings to the government establishment at Barneal where it is smelted and assayed, the owner receives its money value, minus the imperial tax of 15%, the whole valley of the Unisei, as far as explored, is auriferous, were it not for the extreme rigor of its climate and the disadvantages of location, it would become immensely productive, some mines have been worked at a profit where the earth is solidly frozen and must be thawed by artificial means. One way of accomplishing this is by piling wood to a height of three or four feet and then setting it on fire. The earth thawed by the heat is scraped off, and fresh fires are made. Sometimes the frozen earth is dug up and soaked in water. Either process is costly, and the yield of gold must be great to repay the outlay. A gentleman in Irkutsk told me he had a gold mine of this frozen character, and intimated that he found it profitable. The richest gold mines thus far worked in Siberia are in the government of Yeniseisk, but it is thought that some of the newly opened placers in the Transbaikal province and along the Amur will rival them in productiveness. In Irkutsk I met a Russian who had spent some months in California, and proposed introducing hydraulic mining to the Siberians. No quartz mines have been worked in eastern Siberia, 
but several rich leads are known to exist, and I presume a thorough exploration would reveal many more. I saw excellent specimens of gold-bearing quartz from the governments of Irkutsk and Yeniseisk. One specimen in particular, if in the hands of certain New York operators, would be sufficient basis for a company with a capital of half a million. In the Altai and Ural Mountains quartz mills have been in use for many years. The Siberian gold deposits were made available long before Russia explored and conquered northern Asia. There are many evidences in the Ural Mountains of extensive mining operations hundreds of years ago. Large areas have been dug over by a people of whom the present inhabitants can give no account. It is generally supposed that the Tartars discovered and opened these gold mines shortly after the time of Genghis Khan. The native population of the valley of the Yenisei comprises several distinct tribes, belonging in common to the great Mongolian race. In the extreme north, in the region bordering the Arctic Ocean, are the Samoyeds, who are of the same blood as the Turks. The valley of the Lena is peopled by Yakuts, whose development far exceeds that of the Samoyeds, though both are of common origin. The latter are devoted entirely to the chase and the rearing of reindeer, and show no fondness for steady labor. The Yakuts employ the horse as a beast of burden, and are industrious, ingenious, and patient. As much as the character of the country permits they till the soil, and are not inclined to nomadic life. They are hardy and reliable laborers, and live on the most amicable terms with the Russians. Before the opening of the Amur the carrying trade from Yakutsk to Okhotsk was in their hands. As many as 40,000 horses used to pass annually between the two points. Nearly all of them owned and driven by Yakuts. Most of these natives have been converted to Christianity, but they still adhere to some of their ancient practices. On the road, for example, they pluck hairs from their horses' tails and hang them upon trees to appease evil spirits. Some of the Russians have imbibed native superstitions, and there is a story of a priest who applied to a shaman to practice his arts and ward off evil in a journey he was about to make. Examples to the natives are not always of the best and it would not be surprising if they raised doubts as to the superiority of Christian faith. A traveler who had a mixed party of Cossacks and natives, relates that the former were accustomed to say their prayers three or four times on evenings when they had plenty of leisure and omit them altogether when they were fatigued. At nine columns Captain Wrangel found the priests holding service three times on one Sunday and then absenting themselves for two weeks. South of Krasnoyarsk are the natives belonging to the somewhat indefinite family known as Tartars. They came originally from Central Asia, and preserve many Mongol habits added to some created by present circumstances. Some of them dwell in houses, while others adhere to yurts of the same form and material as those of the Buryats and Mongols. They are agriculturists in a small way, but only adopt tilling the soil as a last resort. Their wealth consists in sheep, cattle, and horses and when one of them has large possessions he changes his habitation two or three times a year. On account of pasturage, a gentleman told me that he once found a Tartar, whose flocks and herds were worth more than a million rubles, living in a tent of ordinary dimensions and with very little of what a European would call comfort. These natives harmonize perfectly with the Russians, of whom they have a respectful fear, like their kindred in Central Asia. These Tartars are excellent horsemen and show themselves literally at home in the saddle. Dismounted, they step clumsily, and are unable to walk any distance of importance. On horseback they have an easy and graceful carriage, and are capable of great endurance. They show intense love for their horses, caressing them constantly and treating their favorite riding animals as household pets. 
In all their songs and traditions the horse occupies a prominent place. One of the most popular Tartar songs, said to be of great antiquity, relates the adventures of Swansling, a beautiful daughter of a native chief. Her brother had been overpowered by a magician and carried to the spirit laird. According to the tradition the horse he rode came to Swansling and told her what had occurred. The young girl begged him to lead her by the road the magician had taken, and thus guided, she reached the country of the shades. Assisted by the horse she was able to rescue her brother from the prison where he was confined. On her return she narrated to her people the incidents of her journey, which are chanted at the present time. The song tells how one of the supernatural guardians was attracted by her beauty and became her valid de place during her visit. Near the entrance of the grounds she saw a fat horse in a sandy field, and a lean one in a meadow. A thin and apparently powerless man was waiting against a torrent while a large and muscular one could not stop a small brook. The first horse, said her guide, shows that a careful master can keep his herds in good condition with scanty pasturage, and the second shows how easily one may fail to prosper in the midst of plenty. The man stemming the torrent shows how much one can accomplish by the force of will, even though the body be weak. The strong man is overpowered by the little stream, because he lacks intelligence and resolution. She was next led through several apartments of a large building. In the first apartment several women were spinning incessantly, while others attempted to swallow balls of hemp. Next she saw women holding heavy stones in their hands and unable to put them down. Then there were parties playing without cessation upon musical instruments, and others busy over games of chance. In one room were men and dogs enraged and biting each other. In a dormitory were many couples with quilts of large dimensions. But in each couple there was an active struggle, and its quilt was frequently pulled aside. In the last hall of the establishment there were smiling couples, at peace with all the world and the rest of mankind. The song closes with the guide's explanation of what Swanswing had seen. The women who spin now are punished because in their lives they continued to spin after sunset, when they should be at rest. Those who swallow balls of hemp were guilty of stealing thread by making their cloth too thin. Those condemned to hold heavy stones were guilty of putting stones in their butter to make it heavy. The parties who make music and gamble did nothing else in their lifetime, and must continue that employment perpetually. The men with the dogs are suffering the penalty of having created quarrels on earth. The couples who freeze under ample covering are punished for their selfishness when mortals, and the couples in the next apartment are an example to teach the certainty of happiness to those who develop kindly disposition. The region of the Lower Yenisei contains many exiles whom the government desired to remove far from the centers of population. These include political and criminal prisoners, whose offenses are of a high grade, together with the members of a certain religious order, known as the Skopsi. The latter class is particularly obnoxious on account of its practice of mutilation. Whenever an adherent of this sect is discovered he is banished to the remotest regions either in the north of Siberia or among the mountains of Circassia. It is the only religious body relentlessly persecuted by the Russian government, and the persecution is based upon the sparseness of population. Some of these men have been incorporated into regiments on the frontier, where they prove obedient and tractable. Those who become colonists in Siberia are praised for their industry and perseverance, and invariably win the esteem of their neighbors. They are banished to distant localities through fear of their influence upon those around them. Most of the money changers of Moscow are reputed to believe in this peculiar faith. Many prominent individuals were exiled to the lower Yenisei and regions farther eastward.
under former sovereigns, Count Golovkin, one of the ministers of Catherine II, was banished to Nynkolimsk, where he died. It is said that he used to put himself, his servants, and house in deep mourning on every anniversary of Catherine's birthday. Two officers of the court of the Emperor Paul were exiled to a small town on the Yenisei, where they lived until recalled by Alexander I. The settlers on the Angara were freed from liability to conscription, on condition that they furnish rowers and pilots to boats navigating that stream. The settlers on the Lena enjoy the same privilege under similar terms. On account of the character of the country and the drawbacks to prosperity, the taxes are much lighter than in more favored regions. In the more northern districts there is a considerable trade in furs and ivory. The latter comes in the shape of walrus tusks, and the tusks and teeth of the mammoth, which are gathered on the shores of the Arctic Ocean and the islands scattered through it. This trade is less extensive than it was 40 or 50 years ago. Chapter XLI I spent three days in Krasnoyarsk, chiefly employed upon my letters and journal. My recent companions were going no farther in my direction, and knowing this beforehand, I arranged with a gentleman at Irkutsk to travel with him from Krasnoyarsk. He arrived two days behind me, and after sending away a portion of his heavy baggage, was ready to depart. There was no snow to the first station, and so we sent our sleighs on wheels and used the post carriages over the bare ground. A peasant who lived near the station sought me out and offered to transport my sleigh for three rubles and a little drink money. As I demurred, he proposed to repair, without extra charge one of my fenders which had come to grief, and we made a bargain on this proposition. My companion, Dr. Schmidt, had recently returned from a mammoth hunting expedition within the Arctic Circle. He had not secured a perfect specimen of this extinct beast, but contented himself with some parts of the stupendous hole, and a miscellaneous collection of birds, bugs, and rectals. He dispatched a portion of his treasures by post, the balance, with his assistant formed a sufficient load for one sleigh. The doctor was to ride in my sleigh, while his assistant in another vehicle kept company with the relics. The kegs, boxes, and bundles of Arctic zoology did not form a comfortable couch, and I never envied their conductor. On the day fixed for our departure we sent our papers to the station in the forenoon, and were told we could be supplied at sunset or a little later. This was not to our liking, as we desired to reach the first station before nightfall. A friend suggested an appeal to the master of the post, and together we proceed.